Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, the second coming of Christ is, of course, not without its uh, controversy. And we're going to look at some of those controversies and the reason for those controversies in, in a little while. Um, but I wanted to point your attention to the Baptist faith and message, which you have that statement there on your handout. Interesting thing about the Baptist faith and message 2000 is that this article, article 10, on the second coming of the Lord, actually it's on the last things, so it covers everything from the resurrection to the second coming to uh, all everything in between. There's a lot of churches and denominations and movements you could look at and this statement on a statement of faith uh, would take up a lot of room because there's a lot of specifics that some churches, and it's they're right, uh, a lot of specifics that some churches feel the need to, to be very, um, clear is not the word because we're clear, dogmatic, to, to take a particular viewpoint on the end times of the coming of Christ and to say, this is what we're going to believe and teach as a church. And that's their prerogative. Every church has the prerogative to teach and, and preach how they see fit. Um, but you'll notice that in our statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the statement on the coming of Christ is actually one of the shortest statements in the entire confession. And it says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. And the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. So not only is this part of the Baptist faith and message, and it has been since the beginning of any Christian confession, uh, not let alone the Baptist ones, but this uh, type of confession has been around since the beginning of Christianity itself. So obviously in the Bible, but after that, when we began to write down what we believe as Christians, um, this is one of those truths that's in there. Right alongside the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is this confession. We believe he will come again to judge the living and the dead. What Christians have always referred to as the blessed hope, that thing that we all wait for, the end of history, the end of time, when Christ returns, the dead are raised, and we enter into what we call the eternal state with him in glory forever. This might look to you like the end of the story because we're looking at a linear worldview. There was a beginning and there's coming an end. The beginning of what we know of creation was when God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, and the end of it will be when Christ returns to judge, judge the earth, judge the living and the dead. As we say in our confession, the wicked will be consigned to hell, the righteous will be raised to everlasting life. And although this might look like the end, it really, if you think about it, is really only the beginning of the best part of the story, and that is our reign with Christ in paradise forever and ever. But before we get to the truths around the second coming of Christ, I want to issue some warnings. I think these warnings will do us well to keep our eyes on the prize tonight and anytime you talk about this doctrine, I think. Uh, do not miss the forest for the trees. Okay, everybody familiar with that, that uh, phrase, do not miss the forest for the trees? Don't be so um, consumed and concerned with the minute details of of every aspect of the book of Daniel and every aspect of the book of Revelation that you miss the primary message of Daniel and Revelation. Uh, do not speculate. Do not speculate. I sound like Jesse Jackson here. Do not speculate, but always anticipate. Do not speculate about the return of Christ, especially putting days and times on it that is strictly forbidden in Scripture, but always anticipate looking upward. Uh, the Bible says your redemption draws near. 
do not presume. And by presume, I mean uh, to presume or to assume that your view, especially on some of the detailed things we'll talk about later tonight, is the only view or the only view that a Christian can have. So if you do not believe the same way I believe about the rapture or the millennial kingdom or Israel and the church, then you are somehow a lesser Christian or you don't belong in our church or anything like that. Uh, that, is not an, uh, that is not a charitable way to view these issues. And we're talking about why that's the case. Uh, but these are just some warnings. Anytime you talk about the last days, end times, the rapture, the millennium, I think for far too long in most of evangelicalism, there's been just an assumption that we all believe the same thing, that we all believe the same thing about the rapture, we all believe the same thing about the millennium. And when you hear people talk about these things on TV, radio, or popular Bible preachers and teachers, they say this as if we all just agree uh, with a certain view of the rapture or a certain view of the millennium. And the reality is that many Christians do differ on their views on those things. We'll talk about some of those differences later. So let's talk about the basics. What is it, what are the truths that we can all agree on? What are the truths that we must agree on? If we're doing our theological triage and we're looking at those primary points that we must agree on to be Christians, to be orthodox, uh, what are those? Well, as we say in our confession, Jesus will return physically. Jesus will return physically to the earth. This is to dispel any kind of view. Maybe it's from a liberal or progressive Christianity that would say the return of Christ is not literal. It's not physical. Um, and in fact, they probably don't even believe Jesus rose from the dead. But that the return of Christ in the Bible is just about hope and about the future of mankind and, and all this stuff. And they kind of symbolize the second coming of Christ. Or as some sects and cults in Christian history have done. The Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, lots of groups have done this. They tried to predict a time when Jesus would come back, and when it didn't happen, they argued that, oh, it was invisible, <laughs> or, or it was spiritual. Uh, that is to dispel all of those at once, that Jesus will return physically. I'll put the next one up. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. In Titus 2.13, Paul says this, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's so much to unpack. That could be a whole series in itself. Just that one verse. We're waiting for the appearing of our great, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's something that's going to actually appear that will be seen uh, which will be the glory of the coming of God in Christ. How about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through his holy apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Listen to what Peter says here, beginning in verse 8. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works all done in them will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. So Peter is addressing scoffers. This is mentioned two times in that one verse, right? Uh, scoffers who scoff. <laughs> These people who go on saying, it's been so long, things keep going on as they were before. Uh, God is not really coming. Jesus is not truly returning. And of course, Peter is saying, uh, no, Jesus will return and it will be a day of cataclysmic judgment. Every eye, Revelation 1-7, will see him. Uh, now, this is interesting, depending on, on certain views on the end times and the rapture and the second coming. Um, I just, th- this one is just hard to get around. That when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Uh, I, don't, I don't personally think this leaves room for any uh, secretive Jesus descending in the clouds and, and, and it's all uh, sort of a mystery that nobody sees or knows that he's there, uh, the, tree, the, the rapture of the church and stuff. Um, however that goes down, if it is a rapture, every eye will see Jesus when he returns. That's what he tells us there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And when he comes, he is coming to judge. That's what the earliest creeds say. We believe from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Daniel chapter 12, we see that this judgment is handed over to the Son of Man. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 13, what do we see? That the judge is seated, the books are opened, and we are judged. All men are judged according to our works. Number four, he will raise the saved to eternal life. Revelation 20, verse 4, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is the holy one. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the righteous will be raised to reign with Christ forever and ever. He will consign the unsaved to hell. Same chapter, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so notice here in this verse, it's the beast and the false prophet who are cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. But then we go down to verses 14 and 15, Revelation chapter 20. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here in this chapter, we have one destiny for the beast, the false prophet, antichrist, all the forces of evil and wickedness in the world. They are thrown into the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever. Okay, And it is into that same lake of fire and into that same torment that the unsaved, those whose names were not found written in the book of life, they are also thrown there to be tormented day and night for the rest of time. Jesus, then, will reign forever as King of kings, Lord of lords. Revelation eleven fifteen, when the angel sounds the trumpet, um, there's this announcement that comes over the whole earth. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And if you remember Daniel 7, I won't make you turn there, but in Daniel chapter 7, you have the Ancient of Days seated on the throne in Daniel's vision. The Ancient of Days ruling all, over all the kingdoms and all the other kings uh, of earth is the Ancient of Days. And to the Ancient of Days comes this one, Daniel says, like the Son of Man. You compare Daniel chapter 7 to Revelation chapter 1 and this appearance of Jesus, you see it's the same person. The Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is none other than Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1. And it's to this Son of Man that the Ancient of Days not only gives the authority to judge the world, but then he gives him the authority 
to rule the world in his stead. And so God gives his son, Jesus Christ, the authority and the dominion over all creation. And of course, that also comes to pass there in Revelation eleven fifteen. So these are the basics, okay? Jesus is coming. It is literal and physical. Every eye will see him. He is coming to judge. He is coming to reign. There will be a resurrection of the wicked to eternal torment, and there will be a resurrection of the righteous to eternal life. Okay? Now, these are the core truths. Okay? Those are primary core doctrines. Uh, to deny any of those primary basics is to, at the very least, fall outside of historic Christianity. I'm not going to say it makes you unsaved, though it's very close, because what you believe about the return of Christ uh, is closely tied to what you believe about his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. If we accept those truths the way the Bible presents them, we must accept this truth the way the Bible presents it. But at the very least, it makes you out there somewhere away from what we call Catholic, Orthodox, historic Christianity. Okay? We all confess those basics. Jesus is coming. It's physical. Every eye will see him. There will be a resurrection. He will judge, and then he will reign forever and ever. So what happens after the basics? I couldn't help. I think it's ACDC, right? Welcome to the jungle. Is that ACDC? Guns and Roses, yeah, it's, uh, forgive me, forgive me. Uh, I just heard it in my head, I just heard it in my head as I was uh, going through the lesson today. <laughs> James said, no, no. As many views um, as there is on this, I, I would say correspond to how many Christians there probably are in the world. Uh, when you get down below the basics and we start talking about the inner workings of the rapture and the millennial kingdom and all these kind of various views, I would say that those views are as numerous as there are Christians in the world. And, and even if you find yourself in one particular camp and you say, I am this, 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 and that's what I believe about the end times, even within those labels that we have assigned to those groups, there are other groups underneath those groups uh, that believe even more minute or detailed things about that. So, for instance, as someone says, I'm a, a pre-tribulational, dispensational, premillennialist. Okay, I believe that Jesus is coming before the tribulation for the rapture of the church. I believe that then the church will leave and, and God will return to his promises to his people Israel. And then after a literal seven-year tribulation, Jesus will return visibly. That's the second coming. And then he will set up a thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, uh, the whole nine yards. But even within that view, there are those who say that people during the tribulation cannot be saved. There are people that say that people during the tribulation can be saved. Then there are people who say only Jews can be saved during the tribulation. So even within that view, we, we plant a flag down. And as soon as you plant a flag, there's at least 15 other bullet points that open up for different viewpoints within that viewpoint. So you can see why this is a theological jungle. Once you get past those basics, it's, it's a brave new world out there for, for all the different views. So we're going to talk very briefly and very broadly about some of these different views, okay? Let's talk first about the rapture. Now, last year in the summer, I did a Wednesday night study on the end times, and we talked about some of the various views. I went into a lot more detail then that I'm going to do tonight. So if you want to go back and find that, that might be helpful for you. The rapture means the catching away or the snatching away or being caught up of believers. And this comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, amongst other places, but most notably uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through him, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So you see there this idea of believers being caught up, not that Jesus necessarily is coming down, but that we are being caught up to meet him and all the other believers who have just been raised from the dead. We're going to go meet them in the air. So Paul says, at the coming of the Lord, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, when he returns, if we're alive, we will be caught up to meet them in the air. And so if you believe in um, well, any version of the rapture, you would say, well, you see, Paul says that Jesus is descending, but that he's not coming necessarily all the way down in the second coming, but that we are going up to meet him. Specifically, it says we are going to meet him in the clouds, okay? And so if you hold to that view of the rapture, uh, they're saying this is not the second coming, but this is sort of a first stage in which believers are caught up and raptured away before the tribulation, okay? And there's differences there. We'll talk about that in a minute. The controversy of the idea of the rapture is over when it will occur. All Christians believe what we just read, okay? That's a basic doctrine. The dead in Christ will rise. When Jesus returns, the people who are alive that believe in him will not die, but they will be caught up to meet him in the air as he is returning. And so all Christians of all time believe in some version of a rapture, some version of believers being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The controversy isn't, is there a rapture? The controversy is when is the rapture. And the timing of your view of the rapture has to do with your, it's a big word, but it's a fun one, eschatology. Eschatology refers to the Greek word eschaton, which means the last things, the goal, the end. Okay? So just like we're doing Christology, the study of Christ, eschatology is the study of the last things. Not just the end times, but including the end times. And depending on your end times view, that's going to affect where you see the rapture taking place. Okay, so let's talk about the three primary views on the rapture. One is the pre-tribulation rapture. As you can tell by the name, it means that the rapture will occur before the tribulation. Now, Christians will always be undergoing persecution and trials and tribulations. But in this view, there is a literal seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, during which God's judgment, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets from Revelation, the seven seals, are all unleashed on earth. These, these physical, real judgments that are, that are going to come upon earth and the, the unrighteous during the time of the Great Tribulation. And according to this view, Christians will not be here for that. At least the Christians who were Christian before the rapture. And then there's all the views on whether you can be or not be after the rapture. But let's just leave it there. If you're a Christian up till the point of the rapture, you're taken to heaven and you are not here for those seven years of judgment on the earth. There's also the mid-tribulation view of the rapture. As you can tell, halfway through the tribulation, a time and time and time and a half year, year, a year and a half, three years into this tribulation, um, this view says that there will be this sort of turn with this figure who is the Antichrist, and whereas he was relatively friendly towards Christians or towards Jews, and of course there's another divide, <laughs> he's relatively friendly, at that point he sort of turns and becomes this villainous figure, and at that point the church is raptured out midway through this period of great tribulation. And then there's the post-tribulation view, and again, self-explanatory after the tribulation. Some people in this view uh, would hold to a literal seven-year tribulation at the end of time, after which the Lord will return. Um, I would say many more who hold to a post-tribulation view would say that the, tri the tribulation is symbolic, uh, that there isn't a literal seven-year period of judgment coming but we are in that period of judgment since Christ ascended 
the ongoing war between the forces of darkness and the forces of light, and that will culminate maybe in a heightened period of judgment on the earth, but maybe not a literal seven-year period of judgment on the earth. And it's after that period of judgment that Jesus will return, and the second coming and the rapture are really just the same event. That as Jesus returns from heaven with all those who have gone before, we who are alive and remain, the dead in Christ are raised, then we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet them as we are returning to the earth uh, for the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. So there's not that seven-year gap between, um, or the three-and-a-half-year gap between the rapture and the second coming. It's one big event, and the rapture sort of happens at the same time. So those are the three main views, okay? And again, I'm sure that if you went uh, YouTubing, don't. And if you went Googling, don't. Uh, <laughs> you could find all sorts of fun little trails uh, under the pre-tribulation or post-tribulation or mid-tribulation views. And again, once you get past that, as complicated as that might even seem to you, um, imagine you know, 15 other subdivisions below each. And that's how, that's how wacky this stuff can get. Okay, so be careful. Where one falls in this, and these are all acceptable orthodox views. There's nothing unorthodox or heretical about this. We're, we're on these second and, and tertiary levels of doctrine now, remember. Uh, but it all, this all revolves around how you see um, a lot of things. Um, number one, probably, is your view on Israel and the church. Israel and the church. Again, if you want to go back to last summer, I did two Wednesdays, one on the end times and one on Israel and the church. And depending on how you view that distinction, if there's a distinction in your view between Israel and the church, a lot of that has to do with this end time stuff because that's where a lot of this came from. Okay? Um, maybe your views on Daniel and Revelation. And by that... Um, are those prophecies in Daniel or Revelation already fulfilled? Um, are they partially fulfilled and we're awaiting a, a grand fulfillment? Um, or is it all yet to be fulfilled? Okay, so whether you believe that it's all in the past or it's sort of past and ongoing or it's all future, all of that will determine how you view the rapture. Also, your views on the millennium. You say, what's the millennium? I'm glad you asked because that's our next <laughs> subcategory here. The two main issues driving these differences, the rapture and the millennium. As you can tell from the name, the millennium refers to the 1,000-year reign of Christ. If we're to look at the book of Revelation, chapter 20, <coughs> starting in verse 1, John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority is to judge and was committed. We read this earlier. Also, I saw the, uh, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is that, that doctrine called the millennium, this 1,000-year reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20. The question, again, is this symbolic or is it literal? Will there literally be uh, a second coming of Christ followed by this 1,000-year reign of Christ that is not yet the eternal state, but is the current world and its current existence, although now being ruled by Christ until those thousand years are over. And so, and of course, you look at that, that's a big deal. Is this, is this something we're supposed to read literally? 
that as Jesus returns, there will be this earthly kingdom set up by him. Most of those would say it's in Jerusalem on David's throne to fulfill all those prophecies. And Jesus is there reigning on the earth, over saved and unsaved. And even then there's differences. Is it going to be only saved people or will there be a mix of people? How will that work? Again, your view on this hinges on other end times views. So how, again, how you view those promises that God made to Israel. Um, for some, they see the need for this to be a literal thousand-year reign so that all of those promises that God made to national Israel can have this moment to be fulfilled in a very literal way. The literal Jerusalem, Israel, the land, Jerusalem, the throne of David, and Jesus sitting there, literally, physically, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Or is it symbolic? Are these signs of a bigger picture? Okay, So uh, all that comes into play when you're talking about your view on the millennium. So let's talk about, again, the three primary views on the millennium. There is the premillennial view. The premillennial view is um, a literal 1,000-year reign after the second coming of Christ. Okay, so in this view, uh, whether you believe in a rapture or not, that's, that's another topic altogether. We're, let's talk about the premillennial view. Uh, Jesus returns physically to earth, and then he sets up this earthly kingdom for literal 1,000 years before we enter into the final resurrection and the end of all things. Okay? And then, and within this view, again, there's, there's, there's two primary views under this view. There's the dispensational, and again, go back and listen to last summer on Wednesday night. <laughs> there's the dispensational premillennial view that views Israel and the church as two distinct peoples. And so God has this plan for Israel, uh, national ethnic Israel, and God has this plan for the church. And they're two separate peoples, two separate plans, two separate courses. And so once you have the rapture, the church is out of the way, the church is in heaven with Christ, then God returns to his work with the Jews, to national Israel, culminating in this millennial kingdom. Okay, so that's wrapped up in that whole view. But there, are, there, is, there is a view called historic premillennialism that does not necessarily, some, some do and some don't, see that distinction between Israel and the church. And some would say the church is Israel, the church fulfills Israel. Some will still see a distinction between Israel and the church. They're just not what we call dispensational. Again, go back and listen to last summer on that Wednesday night. Um, and they would, they would also be premillennial, but there's a whole sort of different viewpoint on what that's for. Not necessarily God returning to his work with Israel, but just reading the text at face value and saying, this seems to be literal, Jesus is coming back, and then... There's this literal 1,000-year reign. Then there's amillennialism, the amillennial view. And they would say that this is symbolic of Christ's reign now, culminating in the second coming. Now, you notice there's an entire swap there, don't you? With the pre-mill view, regardless of what type of pre-mill, you have the second coming of Christ before this literal 1,000-year reign. In the amillennial view, there is no literal 1,000-year reign, but that when Jesus ascended, he is now reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven at the right hand of God on David's throne. He's reigning over the kingdom of God forever and ever. And it is from that kingdom he will return to establish his kingdom here, but he is reigning as king now. Satan is bound now. And so the amillennial view says this is symbolic of what Christ has done on the cross and his victory and his resurrection and his ascension. And this is the kingdom that the church lives in right now. And so this isn't some future literal, uh, future literal thousand year reign. It's going on right now and it will culminate in the second coming of Christ. Another view that might sound similar, but there are some nuances here, 
is the post-millennial view. Post-millennialism, what time is it? Post-millennialism ushered in by the spread of the gospel culminating in the second second coming. Again, you see the same order as amillennialism. With pre-mill, it was the second coming, thousand years, eternal state. But with both of these views, the millennium is something else before the second coming. And the amillennial view, ah means no. And so it, it's kind of a misnomer to say that they don't believe in the millennium. The amill don't, but they don't believe it's a literal millennium. Post-mill, post means after. Again, Jesus will return after the millennium. There are some post-mill people who believe that it will be a literal thousand years. There just won't be like a time to be able to say, okay, it starts now. (laughs) But in heaven's clock, heaven's calendar, there is a thousand years in which the spread of the gospel, Christianity, the spread of the message of Jesus will cover the earth. I think it's Habakkuk. They they, they like that verse. Um, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. They like that verse, and they say that points to this view. Um, That things will get I hesitate to say it this way, better and better (laughs) under the spread of the gospel and the church that will usher in the second coming of Christ. Now, some of them think the millennium is still very symbolic. There isn't a literal thousand years. It's the reign of Christ right now, um, but they have this very optimistic view of the spread of the gospel and the spread of Christianity that will bring in the second coming, okay? Any questions on those views? Again, those are the pr- three primary views. And the other views on the rapture are the three primary views. I would just put money on the fact that 95, 97, maybe 97.5, 97.5% of evangelical Christianity probably falls under um, a dispensational, a pre-trib, rapture, pre-mill, second coming view. Is that, is that accurate? You think that's accurate, Pastor Matt? Not, no, David said no. 97%? You think so? I think so. Um, there's a remnant that's otherwise, that's in different views. But uh, again, that, that view, and let me just tell you, let me just be honest with you. Um, that view was, was popularized what, on your paper there, the Left Behind series, for one thing, in the 90s. But long before that, if you can imagine that you're a Christian in World War II, and you can imagine seeing all these things take place on the world stage in a way that have never taken place before. And then you can imagine you throw the Jews into that mix and the horrors of the Holocaust. And then following World War II, you have 1948, and the establishment of this actual line-drawn nation of Israel, uh, you, you, might, you just might start reading your Bible a little differently. And so uh, you can see how this view about Israel and the church, the rapture, the second coming, all this stuff sort of gains popularity 40s, 50s, 60s. And by the 70s, I guarantee you, if there's anybody in here that was in church, Baptist churches, in the 70s and 80s, you probably watched some videos on Sunday night, right, about the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and the seven-year tribulation and World War III and, and all, all that stuff. All of that became very popular, and at the same time, it sort of instilled those views in the majority of evangelicalism. Okay, so like I said, most people speak as if Christians just believe in the rapture. It's just what it is. Uh, most people speak as if Christians just believe in the premillennial coming of Christ, uh, but there are some differences there. But no matter your view on the, uh, the so-called trees, remember to keep your eyes on the whole forest. As Alistair Begg always says, keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. If you're involved in a Bible study or a small group, or not here at our church, but somewhere else. If you're involved in, in some sort of study or some sort of book, or you listen to some sort of teacher, 
or preacher, and they're always pulling out the charts. I hate the stinking charts. They're always pulling out the charts and showing you this time and that time. And listen, if they start adding up years and start adding up numbers and multiplying numbers and subtracting numbers and dividing numbers, and just run away from that stuff, okay? Just run far and run fast, okay? You don't need that. Keep your eyes on the forest. What is the forest? Number one, Jesus is coming. This is what the Christian church confesses. Jesus is returning. When he returns, Jesus will judge. And Jesus will reign. So no matter your view on the rapture or Israel or the millennial kingdom, as important as that is to discuss and to, and to probably have a view, which I don't think I do, but as important as that is to have a view and to think through those things, um, the, this, is, this is the doctrine. This is the theology. The other stuff, in my opinion, okay, in my opinion, this is Brother Matt, not Pastor Matt, in, in my opinion, is just speculation. In other words, I don't think there's any reason why a church or a group of Christians need to put on a statement of faith a very specific, detailed version of the end times. I think the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 does it great. Jesus is coming. There will be a resurrection. He will judge. There's hell and there's heaven, period. All the other stuff, we can speculate, we can talk, we can debate, we can argue even, we can have those differences, but they're not the main things. And, and, and as soon as someone starts making those things the main things, you always run into problems, okay? You can take it to the bank. There's always problems coming. Sorry for all my puberty tonight. Uh, it's the mucus. There's always problems coming when people make not plain things the main things or not main things the plain things. These are the main things. So let's keep them the main things, all right? In the second coming of Christ, we have hope for the believer, because in the second coming of Christ, we have the promise of resurrection. All that we talked about in our series on heaven and that, that book by, um, why does his name leave me? Randy Alcorn. I was going to say Jerry Bridges for some reason. The resurrection of Christ is the culmination of that hope because the resurrection of Christ points us to our resurrection. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, because we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we also believe he will bring those with him who have died when he returns. And then the dead will be raised, and then we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of that final harvest day of resurrection. Jesus' second coming means resurrection. Jesus' second coming means a new creation. Revelation chapter 21, it should be, sorry. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. And God goes on to say, Behold, I am making all things new. The second coming of Christ culminates in the resurrection of the dead and the making all things new in the new heaven and the new earth. Third, it means salvation. Remember in New Testament lingo, we have been saved through faith in Christ. We've been justified. We are being saved by being made more like Christ in our sanctification. And we will be saved when we see Christ in our glorification. Now remember, 
I know this is a hot button. Those are not three separate salvations. Those are not three separate types of salvation. This one, this one, and this one. That's one salvation set free from the guilt of sin and justification, set free from the power of sin and sanctification, and one day set free from the very presence of sin in glorification. And that all culminates with the return of Christ in our glorification. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 5, we are waiting for our salvation to be revealed on the last day. You say, wait a minute, don't I have my salvation now? Yes, you're justified by faith in Christ now. But what you have now, positionally and really and truly, will be brought to fulfillment when Jesus returns. And as we walk by faith now, one day our faith will be made sight. So yes, we have it now. We have it in fullness now. But one day it's coming in its eternal state to be fulfilled forever. In the um, medieval church, um, this is a popular topic, the day of judgment. You might have heard entire masses called masses for the Dies Irae, or the day of wrath. And there was lots of frescoes and paintings and murals put all over medieval churches uh, picturing this, this, this scene of Christ returning and you see the righteous being ushered into heaven over on the right-hand side. And, and then the, or my right, your left. And then, and then the, the damned being thrown into hell and poked by little creatures and things uh, over on, on, the, on your right, my left. Or my left, your right, whatever directions. And so the, the whole point of this was in the churches, because remember in the time of the Reformation, the medieval church, um, the Bible was not in your language the whole Mass wasn't in your language. The sermon, the Eucharist, the whole thing was not in your language. And it was illegal to have the Bible in your language. And so when you would go into a church, aside from you know, baptism or in the sacraments, um, the pictures on the stained glass, the pictures painted on the walls, that was really the only Bible you got. And so as you would go in there and you would see this oftentimes behind the altar at the very front of the church, that's the case with the Sistine Chapel, uh, Michelangelo's famous Day of Judgment, which was very controversial. <laughs> you would go in there and you'd see this. And, you know, we look at that and we say, yeah, Jesus is coming and then there'll be a resurrection to heaven and, and the unbelievers will go to hell. But at that time, this was a thing to be dreaded, even by Christians. Because remember, for medieval Christians, there was no telling whether you were saved or not. You, you really hoped that your good works outweighed your bad works. You really hoped you had seen enough relics and taken enough indulgences and had enough masses said for you and enough prayers said for you. You really hoped that the saints were praying for you and Mary was praying for you so that you could get out of purgatory and, and be ushered into paradise eventually because you did not want to be in hell. But there was no telling whether you would be or not. And so there was uncertainty. There was dread. There was fear. <laughs> fear. There was terror. Well, the reformers, the reformers saw this, and the reformers said, this is false, and, and here's how you know this is false. The reformers said, because if you believe that about salvation, if you believe that salvation is not final, if you believe salvation is not certain, if you believe salvation is unknowable, and if you see the day of judgment as a day of dread, and we'll just see how it turns out. The reformer said you can't obey the Bible that way. Because the Bible tells you specific commands as a Christian. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord. The Bible says be glad. The Bible says serve the Lord with gladness. The Bible says to clap your hands and sing to the Lord. And the reformer said you cannot know that joy you cannot know that hope, and you cannot know that certainty if your salvation is just who knows. And we'll have to wait till that day to find out. The reformers said, no, there is certainty, and there is assurance, and there is hope, and there is joy. If you're to ask a medieval Christian, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead? comfort you 
A medieval Roman Catholic Christian would say it does not comfort me at all because that's a terrifying prospect that Jesus is coming to judge because I don't know where I stand with him. But at the time of the Reformation, a lot of the reformers met together in a German city called Heidelberg at the Church of the Holy Spirit. That sounds fun, doesn't it? And they uh, got together and wrote what's called a catechism. Catechism is a list of questions and answers meant to teach the faith. So, you know, what is God? How many persons are there in God? And there's all these answers that, that teach the Christian faith. One of the questions, I think it's question 55, in the Heidelberg Catechism, asks this question. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Remember what the medieval response would be. It's no comfort at all. It's terrifying. But after the Reformation and the gospel of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone is recovered and people can know where they stand with God because it's not about their works. It's about what Christ has already done for them. Listen to their answer. That in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. You hear that? You hear that first promise there? I'm awaiting the judge, yeah. But that judge happens to be the one who has already given himself over to the judgment for me. And so all I'm awaiting on that day is not judgment and terror and gloom and doom. I'm awaiting the appearance, it's what Paul says in, to Titus, of the great glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the judge but who also happens to be my elder brother. And he will take me into heaven with him because he's paid the price already for me. That's the joy we have in the second coming. Not something to be dreaded. Not something ultimately to be speculated and debated about. But something to rejoice in. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the great glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I ask that as we go from this place tonight, you might fill us afresh with that living hope and we might be looking and anticipating that wonderful return of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us to long for that day. Help us to be alert. Help us to live in light of that day in holiness and Christ-likeness, serving our master because we do not know when he will return. God, give us your grace and your mercy and your power to do your will in this world as we await your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.